0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 86 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 86, we are going to predominantly talk through, walk through, think through um, what we could call an international Bible quizzing hypothetical, essentially how to construct teams. Uh, how to coach teams, uh, and, and all sorts of kind of strategies around that sort of subject. But before we get there, I want to do a couple of updates. The first one is really short and simple and easy. And that is that sometime early last week, I think it was after the last podcast episode, uh, I did a, um, an unexpected CBQZ update. I was originally planning on not actually doing much support for CBQZ, but, I was in the middle of something that was somewhat related and was kind of like, yeah, I might as well go ahead and make an update. And what I've done is I have fixed the uh, occasional bug that happens where you fail to hit type minimums on natural questions one through 20. So like skipping, say, 18A and 18B, that kind of stuff. So that bug is fixed. Um, you still, as a quizmaster, need to manually handle question type selection for the the natural questions in overtime, uh, but theoretically, uh, you should not run into any kind of problems, uh, sub, uh, overtime, uh, in, in that regard. So the, in terms of fixing stuff, uh, beyond, uh, question 20, so like into overtime, Uh, well, it's gonna be, (laughs) that's gonna be really hard to do in CBQZ because it's going to require essentially a complete gutting of how it selects questions, uh, which QuizSage does, uh, but to do that in CBQZ would be a fairly significant headache, which is part of why, uh, QuizSage is a thing after all, uh, to begin with. Um, so anyway, that's sort of the, the state of the CBQZ world. If you guys uh, notice any kind of bugs or problems with CBQZ beyond, say, just overtime question selection, uh, please do let me know. Uh, you can email us at iq at cbqz.org or chat with us in the um, uh, Inside Quizzing channel on Slack. Uh, but definitely want to hear if you guys are encountering any other sort of major so- showstopper bugs uh, like that. Uh, so then the the sort of the next I don't know it's not really an announcement it's really just more just sharing some data and kind of where you know at, at least my mind is um we'll see if Scott's mind is in the same place <laughs> um this is I my mind certainly is is spending a lot of time thinking about when we can transition back to in person quizzing uh in PNW and I've been getting some questions uh via email over the last uh, week or two around, you know, hey, are we there yet? Or do we know when we might be there and all that kind of good stuff. So I want to want to go through some stats. uh, But I before I go through some stats, and then talk about kind of where things are at, I want to remind everybody what Mark Twain about statistics, he said, there are three kinds of lies. And one of them is statistics. So with that in mind, I'm going to share some data, but I'm not really drawing any sort of conclusions from this data, but just sort of sharing where things are, at least from what I'm seeing so far. So the first is uh, looking at a seven-day moving average of cases. We're seeing a rather rapid drop um, from, I don't know, what, like a month ago, uh, give or take. Uh, Our numbers are still really high, and this is across the US. Sorry, I should clarify. These numbers are all... um, uh, uh US only so this does not include Canada um but my understanding is the numbers in Canada are relatively similar uh so there's a there's a fairly significant drop over the last 4 weeks however our still our absolute numbers still to date are of case uh case reporting is still fairly high um however the expectation is the drop is going to continue and that drop is has a slope that seems to be uh, getting slopier, uh, in other words, steeper, uh, which is a very good thing uh, because it means we're dropping in cases faster as time progresses. Uh, right now, I, I hear, I'm hear i hearing different things, but I want to say there's about you know 10% of the U.S. population is now vaccinated. Big hand, wavy num, you know, it, it really, really, really depends on the state and the locale and all kinds of other things. But that's just sort of a general measure that I'm hearing right now it's the, the other thing to keep in mind is there's, um, it's very difficult to measure this, but there, I have heard that there could be as much as a 20% uh, of the population having natural antibodies. In other words, you know, 20% of the population at this point, uh, basically, uh, being exposed to COVID and recovering, uh, to the point where, uh, they, they theoretically have at least uh, some kind of short-term immunity uh, behind that. So essentially when you're talking about immunity of the population, we've got some, we've got essentially a Venn diagram of the, the folks who are vaccinated and the folks who have natural antibodies. And so that number is somewhere between, if you combine all of them, that number is somewhere right now between 20 and 30%. It's probably closer to 20%, but it's somewhere in that that ballpark, right? Um, we're adding between 1 and 2 million vaccinations per day, probably somewhere around the uh, 1.4 million on average, but obviously there's huge fluctuations there on a day-to-day average, which means that over the course of February, we're going to go from, because we're, we're recording this right now on February 1st, we're going to go somewhere between 32 million now to 42 million uh, by the end of February or sorry, for adding 42 million in the course of February, meaning that we should end up with about 74 million, uh, folks carrying antibodies by one means or another, uh, by the, um, sorry, vaccinations. That's not, that's not pure antibodies. Um, so that's 20, that's 23% by the end of February, assuming linear, you know, progression, which is a very large assumption and probably wrong. Um, but it just gives us a, 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 at least a mental framework for kind of thinking about where things will be by by the end of February. So theoretically, what that means is by the end of, of February, we should see a new case rate that is very, very low, r- at least relative to now. Um, but again, this is all just kind of we don't really know. And we're just going to ha- kind of have to see how the next four weeks Uh, progress, but I am optimistic. That said, uh, we're really not deciding to start up PNW in-person quizzing based on, you know, the statistics. We're doing it based on Washington and Oregon policymakers. So right now, the Washington and Oregon policies are still fairly locked down, fairly strongly, but based on what we're seeing, that's probably going to change by the end of this month. Um, so we'll just kind of have to follow that and see where it goes. The other kind of component of the decision-making process is that a lot of this is up to parents and church program leaders, uh, whether they want to, and are feeling comfortable participating with in-person quizzing whenever we get to that point. Right. So we can't transition to in-person quizzing until Washington and Oregon policymakers, uh, you know, uh, stipulate policy that allows us a means by which we can do in-person quizzing, uh, but then, even when that happens, parents and and, and church program leaders need to be, uh, you know, on board at least predominantly. So, from a practical perspective, uh, right now, if we were to switch to in-person quizzing in PNW right today, like, uh, and our next meet is coming up in like uh, three weeks, a little bit under three weeks. So, basically, if we were to take that meet and and do it in person, practically speaking, we would pick up a couple of churches that have currently not been participating in virtual, which would be great. It would be awesome to be able to get those couple of churches uh involved, but we would, based on what I'm hearing from coaches, we would probably lose between two and three churches uh that, that are currently involved in virtual, but would not be involved in in-person. Now, will that change by the end of the month? I think probably. Uh, because things are changing fairly quickly, like, all, all, you know, certainly by a week to week basis and even day by day, uh, it, things are, things are kind of moving and shifting. So I'm personally optimistic we may be able to switch back to in-person for the March meet, <coughs> but, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not optimistic enough where I'm going to say, yes, it's going to happen. But I remain cautiously optimistic that it will happen. Uh, but it, we're going to have to see what the data looks like, maybe over the next uh, two, probably more like three weeks or so, and then we should be able to have some decent trends to be able to make some predictions and and you know talk more amongst program leaders and parents and and hear more from policy policymakers. So, with that said, I'd say it's unlikely, actually bordering on very unlikely that we're going to have the February meet in person. But the March meet is, I don't know, it's starting to look quite possible, which may seem to some to be maybe too optimistic on my part. But, you know, the March meet is a month and a half away, actually a little bit more than a month and a half away, and a lot can change in a month and a half. So we'll just kind of see how that how that goes. So anyway, that's a whole bunch of sort of Stats that that I pulled out of various different sources, and then uh, some rough analysis on my part. Uh, Scott, what are your kind of thoughts about any of that stuff? Any agree, disagree with anything? Any kind of additional thoughts on any of that?
1: Well, I think in general, I'm in a very lucky spot in that I can easily work from home. I am not high risk medically at all. But given all that, I still struggle to develop even a personal model for my own behavior. Like, should I completely quarantine because I have the ability to, um, should I, even if I get vaccinated and, um, feel safer for myself, should I not go out to restaurants because it's still unknown whether or not I could still, um, carry it and transmit. And, um, should you have 100%, um, Confidence that you could not get it or transmit it before engaging in any kind of public activity, Um, knowing that there are probably tons of um, less harmful diseases like colds and flus and things that people just always have that we were probably more cavalier about than we should have been, you know, long before COVID. It just all of it makes it very hard for me to decide, even personally, what what is the either optimal or most appropriate behavior, right? And then you take it up another level when you are deciding course or policy for a larger group of people. And I would, I would struggle to make those sorts of decisions for sure, because um, you can't know almost anything with a certainty, which makes it very tough when um, even given probabilities, you I think it, it gives you pause when it's health related right? And not something that is potentially less harmful, regardless of the specific probabilities, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And of course, you know, when we do get back together, it's not going to instantaneously be exactly like it was. Um, So I should be I should make that really clear. We aren't going to wait until we get to a 100% confidence that we're a 100% safe, but we are going to wait till we get to, I don't know, 90% 90% confidence that we're 90% safe. I don't know. Some some very high number, right? I, I don't know exactly what the number is, but it's like what Scott's saying, how do you calculate this stuff? It's it's very difficult. But the the idea being that we're not going to wait till we get to 100% because I don't think we'd see in-person quizzing for years. Um if we wait for that level of certainty, um and so as a result, when we begin in-person quizzing, in-person quizzing is going to have to operate a little bit differently than what we were used to, right? So, um, something along, I, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but some of the ideas that I've been sort of thrashing around in my head would be limiting the number of spectators. Uh, maybe even with the first meet or two, uh, not allowing any spectators, right? The idea of saying you can only show up to the meet if you are, you know, a coach or a quizzer and that's it. Right. Which is really lame because, you know, we love having spectators. We love having, you know, parents and friends and and so forth. And folks from the church uh, pop in and watch quizzing. And that's a really wonderful, awesome thing. But I think we need to curtail that. Um, temporarily, the first couple of meets or so, or for some definition of the first few meets, whatever that happens to be. um, We're also going to probably have to uh, do mask wearing uh, to a fairly significant degree. Uh, And exactly what that looks like, I have absolutely no idea. But, you know, when we switch back to in-person quizzing, the first in-person quiz meet is going to look and feel very different than what we were used to, you know, a little over a year ago now. Um, so specifics of what that are, I don't, I don't know, stay tuned, but yeah, the calculus is non-trivial.
1: So here's a comedic observation and then, um, and a question for you, but the comedic observation is one thing that would be very thankful, um, that I would be very thankful for is no constant in between every question hand slaps at internationals that would make me completely overjoyed. <laughs> um, but what if mask wearing is a thing, do you think it either should or can extend to quiz masters?
0: Yeah. See, and that because that's really difficult. So there's a, there's a handful of things. I think I'm really, really torn on this because on one hand, it, you can certainly say for anybody who is not quizzing and not at the officials table, wearing masks is a, is a no brainer. Like, like it should just happen because it, it, it's not terribly onerous. Uh, and you know, it, it, it cuts down on, you know, any kind of transmission of anything. Right. So that's, that's an easy, that's an easy choice, at least in my mind, in terms of officials at the table, uh, you know, let's, let's say a, a a scorekeeper and an answer judge. Uh, I think, masking is a good idea most of the time, right? Like, I don't really see there being a reason why you wouldn't. With a quiz master, it's kind of like, well, but like the whole, everything we do is around mouth shapes and stuff. Um And so it, it, I don't know. The it, To me, it's kind of like, as long as you can have a decent amount of space between the quiz master and the other officials and the quiz master and the quizzers, then I'm thinking no masking is a good idea. Maybe we also require quizmasters to undergo, you know, pre quiz meet testing, uh, you know, like get a COVID test 72 hours before the quiz meet or something. I, I don't know, like, like something along those lines. Uh, but then, and so to me, that's a fairly easy thing to do because I think you can screen your quizmasters uh, to some degree, Uh, And, and with a decent amount of, you know, care, but then it's like, okay, well, what about the quizzers? You've got 12 quizzers. Well, really 15, but you know, 12 at a time sitting up on the chairs in very, very close proximity to each other. And like, we're not going to institute like plexiglass barriers, um, between every chair. Uh, I, I just don't see that as being viable. Uh, so you know, probably a good idea to have quizzers who are on the stage mask up, but then you'd have to have them remove the mask when they come up to the microphone to answer. And then of course, like, you know, quizzers, especially, you know, 90 quizzers are going to be, you know, putting their masks on and on, off and on, like constantly. That's not a good idea. Um, Right. So Yeah, there's all kinds of who knows kind of stuff. I think, I think we can do certain things fairly easily, right? So the idea of saying we will foul anybody who high fives or hugs, uh, you know, between questions or something. Um, I think that's probably pragmatic, although a little bit on the depressing side. Um, and, you know, going a step further, which I I think we should be doing even outside of the world of COVID is basically fouling somebody for answering when they aren't within a particular square (laughs) marked in duct tape on the floor, uh, that is, that is the answering square. So the idea of like, you can't just stand from your chair and answer. You have to, you have to stand from your chair, walk into the answering square and then answer. Um, I think that's a really good pragmatic thing that I would be in favor of doing regardless of the COVID situation. But then like, do we have the quizzers mask up? Uh, I mean, I think we kind of need to, and then like what's worse, right? Having a quizzer constantly take off and then reapply their mask throughout a quiz or have them sit in a fairly tight cluster of 12 people, you know, on a stage. And I like, well, I don't know. I don't know the science behind that. Maybe having the mask and constantly dealing with it is probably better, but I have no idea.
1: Interestingly. Well, I was about to say that pads might allow for a greater distance between quizzers than benches would, but ev if it does, it would be by the most small of amounts, right? There's still a cable that has a yeah. limited stretch. Um and I think even if it's not the best, you would probably agree that a masked quiz master is better than virtual quizzing.
0: Yes. Yes. I think I think I think I think it's worse from pure, like like purely evaluating the uh, from the quiz mastering perspective, right I think a quizmaster virtual no mask is better is a better quiz master for quizzers than a quiz master in person with a mask, but the in person qualities of the rest of the quiz are much 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 greater uh in person than virtual, and therefore you know mathematically would would outweigh. Uh, the masking of the quizmaster at the table in person.
1: And I think it was the orator Daniel Webster who would practice speaking articulately by um, speaking with rocks in his mouth. And in kind of a similar way, if quiz masters and quizzers ever had to speak with a mask on, it would force um, high volume and articulation, which would be a benefit um, post mask wearing.
0: That is true. That is very true. Um Yeah. <laughs> there's just, I mean, the, 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 the math behind this stuff is so amazing. Um, You know, trying to calculate the, you know, the, the contagion rate of any quizzer. Uh, I mean, it starts to get cr- pretty crazy pretty quickly. Um How, I, I don't actually know this answer because, I mean, we've mostly been, you know, self-quarantined. Is there, I mean, how much are COVID rapid testing? I mean, it's not a ton of money, is it? No,
1: but um, I think I do know someone who got one and um, it was not expensive, but I do not know if um, that was insurance-based, right, and mm-hmm. that it differs between people. But the timing can definitely be a problem. Like, for, I don't know if it's specific airlines or specific types of flights, but they're requiring a, um, a negative test within 72 hours of departure, right. but that gets that gets thrown into variability very quickly if you don't know exactly how quickly the test results are going to be turned around or if your flight gets delayed. Um, So there are definitely lots of variables in play, but I'm hopeful that um, access to testing the cost of it and the turnaround time continue to improve beyond whatever baseline they're at now. But I don't have a whole lot of anecdotal experience of the specifics.
0: Yeah. I have zero experience there. Well, sort of, I mean, I personally have zero experience. We had uh, a a guest come to our house and stay for a few weeks uh, back in December, and uh, she was traveling from Alaska and um, which, you know, at this point has a a, a very high vaccination rate, but um, she had not been vaccinated at the time. Actually, I think that was before the vaccines, I think it was before the, the Pfizer vaccine came out even. Um, but she did the, you know, that, that rapid test. Um, I think it was about 48 hours before her flight, you know, kind of thing. And then um, tested again when, when once uh, she was here and that kind of stuff. And so, and then of course, while she was here, we didn't really, you know, there wasn't, we didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so um, the there's that. And of, of course, we're also talking about one person versus, you know, a couple hundred people. So definitely apples to oranges there. But I mean, maybe it's one of those things where, especially if we're talking about IBQ, if everyone, including quizzers, get one of those rapid tests, uh, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours before their flight, uh, and then they have those results. That's certainly a very positive, you know, sort of thing. And I mean, and again, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the mask thing. Are masks hundred percent, um, successful? No. But they're one layer, you know. And so, is a 72-hour test or a 48-hour test going to be, you know, the conclusive thing? No. Uh, But if we do that plus masking, plus policies, plus the answering square, which we should do anyway, um, then uh, then put all that together, and it's probably a very very safe environment. Actually, let's talk about the answering square. Um, Have I talked? I can't remember. I think we talked about the answering square before, uh, but if we have or haven't, do you agree or disagree with that idea? I agree with it. Like long-term? Oh, yeah. So like like 10 years in the future, there's no COVID whatsoever. We still have a square. And if you start answering outside the square, you're fouled? Or how would that work? Like we couldn't, we'd have to, it would have to be a foul, wouldn't it?
1: Um. So let's think of the logistics. By the way, back on the COVID testing, I just read an article today that the FDA has approved a $30 at-home COVID test from a digital um, diagnostics company from Australia. And so I imagine, speaking cynically, the the financial incentives are there to provide more and more testing that is good. And so I think we will only see more of these things. And even in a if I can say a post-COVID world, um, there will always be diseases of various levels of contagion and harmfulness, right, that these, right. Things, these sorts of testing will be beneficial for. So um, those sorts of things would be useful. But back on the answering square, as far as logistics, I do think it is a bridge too far to say that only content said within the square will be considered because then the officials are needing to um, delineate that crossover line. And that just seems like too much. Um and i I think it would have to be um you must enter the square before saying anything verbally right um and um and remain in it, and I think it would have to be pretty fixed like that, and I think you could make the square big, right, where it's like four feet by four feet or something, like it doesn't have to be one foot
0: by one foot <laughs> well or or two feet by by six feet right like like it can be wide, so I mean, if you want to pace, you can pace or something like that, but definitely there needs to be some sort of square or circle or I don't know, some sort of demarcation of some kind. But here's the thing. I mean, it can't be the quiz master who's watching for it. It has to be either the answer judge or the scorekeeper or both. Um, because like the quiz, there's no way that as a, as a quiz master, I can add checking for that consistently for every quizzer to, to my workload. Right.
1: But I so like, I think those logistics are very useful to discuss, and um, we're not trying to disadvantage quizzers that think best while they are in movement, yeah. um, but I think there are lots of current downsides to quizzers who don't articulate well or speak loudly enough or face the quiz master. and sure, it's their problem that they can fix, but I think something simple like this kind of eliminates all of that, and I I would hate to call someone wrong who knew the material just because they didn't speak with, um, good enough volume articulation. If we kind of give them this, it's more than a nudge, but if we basically give someone the incentive to do something that only advantages them, I like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's also, it's just good habit, right? Um, you stand up, you walk to the mic, um, you say your answer, you turn around, you walk back. It's just sort of, it's good. It's good practice. It's good habit. Um, and I like the idea of codifying it. All right. Well, any, any additional thoughts on this topic before we move on? I don't think so. All right. So let's move on to the, uh, IBQ hypothetical. So Scott and I were talking bef- just before we started recording, uh, around this idea of, um, an IBQ hypothetical, and it's mostly from the perspective of a coach, but it's it's sort of multifaceted. So to kind of kick things off, imagine that you are the head coach of the your international teams, a plural, uh, from your district. And let's say uh, I don't know, let's say you've got a top ten folks in your district, or or whatever. Let's say you've got ten people who've been selected. Uh, to go to IBQ who can go into two teams. How do you best, uh, construct your top five? Now, this is assuming that you're not striping your teams. You're not trying to have, you know, two teams of even strength, but rather you are trying to optimize your number one team as much as possible, right? And there's arguments, you know, for and against that. We're just gonna take that as a given that your goal here as a coach is to optimize your number one team, uh, because then we can start walking through sort of the theories of, of, of how to do it. And there's things around like, you know, quizzer selection. How do you construct a team from a quizzer selection perspective? And how do you coach the teams once you have those folks uh, selected and in place? And there's a, a lot of calculus that goes into it. So uh, Scott, what are your kind of first level thoughts on this one?
1: So first off, I'm a very, very competitive person. And so it was always important to me that whoever qualified in the top five was able to be together on a team because most of the time those are going to be your five best, I guess, um, quizzers. So in a world where a district is attempting to form the most competitive internationals team from their top 10 quizzers, that's definitely something that you want to decide a Decide on before the year starts and clearly articulate to everyone so that the expectations are super clear uh, Because I mean, I think there are scenarios where the top five wouldn't together make the strongest team but I think the Incentive to qualify for that most competitive team is a big incentive that drives effort throughout the whole year um, and If a quizzer doesn't know specifically that making the top five will get them on that most competitive team. It might affect incentives throughout the year. Um, but that said, um, how would I pick the top, the best top five? I mean, in general, I think material knowledge trumps all because you can teach other stuff, but you can't really teach the, um, internal motivation and intrinsic reward of putting in the work to really master the material. Um, And so I would always bias towards that measure when picking quizzers, because I feel like I can teach everything else better than I can try to motivate someone to do better at memorizing the material. What
0: do you think about that? Can I – let me push back on that a little bit. I think generally that's true, but there are exceptions, and you and I both experienced an exception, um, where there was a quizzer who knew – pretty close to 100% of the material. If you if you gave this quizzer a, a you know a reference only uh at random, there was a very high probability this quizzer would be able to quote the material and probably quote it word perfect. I mean, it maybe not word perfect everywhere, but but pretty close, right? And ultimately what happened was this quizzer was utterly and completely unmotivated to like actually get any jumps and the quizzer I think got a zero or like something very close to a zero, um, at IBQ. Uh, uh, and so I don't know. So to me, like, like I think in general, all other things being equal material knowledge is without question the, the highest, uh, metric, if you're going to have a series of metrics in a heuristic, but like if there's zero motivation, uh, to actually attempt any jumping, then to me, like the material knowledge is sort of wasted. It's almost like you need some amount above zero motivation intrinsic in the quizzer, uh, to do well at internationals, uh, along with, and, and of course that motivation doesn't have to be huge. It can just be, I think it needs to be above absolute zero. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, but and I know who you're talking about, but I think that that situation was very, very, very unique, right? Because yes, I can bring up all kinds of scenarios of quizzers, like a quizzer who knew the material well but was just really scared of jumping at the speed required to win jumps, and thus got a zero one year and then scored very well in future years, right? And that's right. the exact type of quizzer that I, I will teach you all day long, right? We right. have other quizzers who knew less material but were, but had the same thing of just being scared to jump on recognition one and a half syllables and I get it but I still would rather try to teach that and coax it out of a quizzer than the opposite because we also had a quizzer one year who knew the material pretty decently but then just ended up being very unmotivated by anything about the competition individual or team (laughs) and that was also a very unique situation so I think like sure those are very unique situations, but even knowing that those have existed and probably will exist at random times in the future, um, I would still just, I would both heavily bias towards material knowledge and I would also be fine with um, selecting in a blanket blind blanket way based on that and accept the random lumps whenever they happen to crop up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. I agree. I mean, I, I, from a perspective of saying like, if you only have material knowledge to go by, it is, it's not the worst thing, right? Like, you'll have exceptions that, that sort of, um, don't work out well, but those are exceptions. They're not the standard. So, if you only have one metric, uh, to, to use, then, yeah, using, um, using material knowledge is the, is the right metric. And I would say using material knowledge is actually a better metric than the, the individual's, uh, average over the district level meet quizzing, right? Um, I'd say material. Yeah. I I think material knowledge is actually more important than that. Now, certainly, I think you want to use more than one, one metric, right? Um, but I think it, there's, there's some sort of, I don't know, there's probably a formula out there and it's sort of like material knowledge times some constant plus, uh, you know, intrinsic motivation times some constant and the, and of course the, the math I'd have to think about how to construct the formula. I just want to, I want to basically filter the people who show up with, with absolute zero or extremely close to absolute zero intrinsic motivation because you can't coach them.
1: Right. Right. And so ideally you filter those out. Now, um, here's an interesting side, which is this is going to sound like I am just trying to compliment myself, but I'm really not. So I think that there is a type of quizzer, and that's what I was, where they are very cerebral, but they feel like they can just almost brute force the thinking side of it. And then when it comes to, but then when it comes to actually quizzing, like the timing side of winning jumps in internationals is almost entirely feel based, and those sorts of quizzers just die because they don't have the feel to do it. And there was me, and I can think of another quizzer who the results at internationals were far below the material knowledge, but that's the fun of it. You have to pair both things up, right? Right. So have you had experience with that sort of thing where like almost no feel, but just, I I don't even know, I don't know how another way to describe it.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking about two different components. You're, You're talking about uh getting the jump with enough information that you can answer the question right and then and and and, and I, let me rephrase that getting a jump having given enough having received enough information that if you knew everything perfectly with 100% recall instantly you would be able to get the question right so purely independent of your material knowledge it's a it's a a jump based on sort of optimum jumping speed, right? And then the other uh, equation of that is knowing the material well enough that if you optimally jump, you will get the question correct, right? Um, I think the latter of those two things, the material knowledge is something that you you want somebody who's just gonna... uh, I don't know, brute force it in their head, right? They're just going to they're going to pound the material into their head over and over and over again and and get it really strongly uh learned. And then there's study lists and all kinds of other sort of strategies that you can that you can just push in there. And it's it's sort of like um I don't know, you imagine an athlete who works in the gym, right? I th- I see an athlete who is in the gym lifting weights and going out onto the track and sprinting and that sort of stuff. That to me in a sport that is not <laughs> weightlifting and is not track and field right pick whatever sport you want right to me that's sort of memorizing uh and then the finesse of you know if it's football the finesse of throwing in a particular way of catching a, in a particular way of um not memorizing your routes because to me that's again that's sort of like weightlifting or running track but really more the finesse of 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 choosing your routes in a particular way To me, that's more the 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 other side of the coin, and that might be what you're referring to as like the feel, right? Like you, um, and I think you, I think you really need both. Um, I don't know. I forget where my where my conclusion was going with that, but does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it just if you could define like a good jump as like binary, (laughs) I feel like a quizzer like me, the average number of good jumps I was winning a quiz was like three quarters of a A jump jump. (laughs) and then you take a different quizzer who might be averaging three jumps a quiz. And so even if their material knowledge is lower than mine, they're going to score way better. And I don't know how much that quality is taught. And so, um, I think that would be something I would want to identify if I am just getting to free select quizzers is that ability to just win good jumps.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and it's, 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 both a question of is is the ability there and can the ability be taught, right? And to what extent can it be taught? I think think a good coach, a great coach can teach almost anything with some exceptions. I think the greatest coach in the world is not going to be able to increase motivation from a state of absolute zero to something higher than absolute zero. I think a great coach can help to increase motivation i think a great coach can help hone in certain jump skills i don't know that if the jump skills are really poor i don't know that a great coach can really do much um although they might i don't know they might be able to
1: yeah so i think but that's an interesting quality that i see differing between quizzers right Mm -hmm. um But then this leads into another theory of mine, which is to consistently score at internationals, you have to be among the best five quizzers at that type, at that question type. Maybe it's not five, maybe it's eight, maybe it's three. I don't know what it is specifically, but it is some fairly limited number. And I think the the study work required to get to that level is not trivial. And so I think for 90% of quizzers, um, they just don't have the motivation or the time to get to that level at more than a couple question types. And when I talk about question types, I mean, um, I guess how granular am I being really just finish finish quote situation, CVR, CR, int. So fairly high level groupings. Um, and so I think part of a coach's job is to observe your quizzers motivation level and really guide them towards being focused because to me the the worst kind of quizzer that I could get would be a quizzer who sure they might know the whole material decently um but they put in um maybe a One third percentile amount of time on every single question type because then they show up to internationals and basically can't consistently win a jump on any type even though if you just awarded them jumps they would do better than probably half the quizzers there
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right like in an across the board way but they have to be able to be in that top five for a specific question type and they aren't for any question type does that make sense yeah totally So I think that's a big job of a coach is to guide quizzers and say, like, really define what that threshold is for a given question type so that the quizzer knows, like, I've hit it. um, And if I have the ability to maintain it, then I can go on to a different question type. But if I haven't hit that threshold for this question type, it is – I am not helping the team um, by starting on a different question type.
0: Yeah. Well, and then – kind of talk a little bit about then in terms of going back to the very beginning around like constructing constructing a team, as a coach, you might pick somebody if you're if you're talking about like you've got ten quizzers and you're trying to pick the top five, you might pick somebody whose material knowledge is like an eight and their jumping uh precision is also an eight. Uh, and I, what I mean by eight, I, mi- I, I mean like like eighth from the best, right? So best is number one, uh, least good is 10th. Um, and this person is ranked eighth in both of those uh, queries. You might actually pick them for your top five team purely because they're better than any of the alternatives for a question type that's not duplicated.
1: Exactly, right? I don't know if I've, if I have anything else to add to that point, but I mean, there was one year where... I mean, I feel pretty confident that we knew the material better than any other team. But when it came to quiz, I think it was F, right? Do or die quiz, um, questions 17 and on, I think three of those four questions were specialties, and the other teams had a quizzer who was better at those specialties, right? And by the other yeah. teams, I mean among their 10, um, they had at least one person who was better than anyone on our team. And the quiz just got away from us at the end. And it just shows like it's that that's part of the fun of quizzing right we're not it's not a quoting b it's can you score and there are different question types in varying amounts that come up randomly and that's what bit us at the end which is why like mastery of the types is so important and that leads right into um differing qualities between the question types so for interrogatives the for well for every question type i would always calculate for a given syllable speed what percent would a computer get right? And well, for interrogatives, as you go each half-syllable increment, the gaps can be fairly wide, right? Like um, you might have a jump between one and one and a half syllables from 40% to 60% or something large. Whereas if you look at almost every other type, the gaps between syllable jumps are incredibly small. (laughs) And it shows like the gain to being in the top five for one of those question types means that you can win like every jump at a, a very competitive accuracy. Whereas for interrogatives, you could, if you won every jump, you still might be playing at 60% accuracy. Um, And it's just the, the variance in speed to uniqueness is wider on interrogatives than it is on any other type, which I think is the real value of the specialties even though they're in smaller quantities, is that when they come up, um, if you are the best prepared team, it's almost free points, um, which is why- Well, it-
0: yes, but it's all—it's always relative to the other teams, right? So, I mean, I, I in general, I think you're absolutely right if you're looking at your team in sort of an absolute perspective, but like your team is quizzing against two other teams. And so it's like, if the other teams have hyper-specialized Um, but not around interrogatives, you can actually slow your interrogative jumping to radically increase your, 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 your probability of, of success, you know, maybe up to 90% or something like that. Um, because the other teams aren't as competitive on that, uh, if you, if you're specializing there, right? Sure. What's your point though? Well, it's more like, it's, it's more to say like, I agree with everything you're saying, but I want to temper the notion, like anybody out there listening right now, I want to sort of temper the idea of saying, okay, this means I should ignore interrogatives and I should pick a specialty like a a CVR or a, you know, a quote or whatever it happens to be. And I'm going to just go crazy on that specialty. And it's like, that could be a very, very compelling and very important strategy, but it could also be the wrong strategy.
1: Right. And I'm not saying you pick it instead of. So, I mean, my goal has always been to be the winning team. And I think to Mm. be the winning team, those teams don't have weaknesses. So um, you roughly have a top five quizzer for every single question type. And I, I wouldn't say that picking the specialties is the optimal move because I think in general, interrogatives are like by far the most important type because they are over half the questions. Um, so I think that they are indispensable and you have to like be very competitive on those, um, to get anywhere. But if you want to win internationals, you can't punt, I think any specialty, like maybe you can punt the PRM multiple answers. Um, but you can't, you can't punt anything else. Um, you would basically have to be literally the, like the best have two of the best quizzers, um on interrogatives to be able to withstand punting an entire specialty, even if that specialty only happens two times a quiz, three times a quiz. Right. Um, um to win, right. But if if I'm saying like, oh, we're a team that usually takes 20th, how do we get to be fourteenth? I would say just work on material knowledge and just jump on interrogatives. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, like that's the that's the quickest path to that. Um, but if you're like, oh, we usually make semis, but we've never won. It's like, well, you need a top five quiz in every specialty. And I don't think there's any way around that.
0: Even to get into the top nine?
1: Not to get into the top nine, but let's say you, okay. you've been making the top nine, but you've never won. I think to make that leap is you can't have a weakness.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think you can have maybe one weakness and make top three, but yeah, if you want to ultimately get first place, then yeah, you can't, you pretty much have to be Straight on perfect
1: and like there are always going to be like many exceptions There was a team that won five or six years ago And I don't remember if they had any weaknesses But they had a quizzer who was one of like the best quizzes I've ever seen at a given question type And if you have that level of domination on something it does give you a little more wiggle room for everything else um, But it's pretty rare to see that usually the top scoring quizzers are just very very good at a few question types as opposed to an all timer at a single question type. Um, but yeah, I mean, but that's what makes it fun. There's just many different ways to devote your study time and to pick your jump speeds. And yeah, like how are you going to go about a quiz? And it's, it's awesome.
0: How much do you think personality type matters? Um, and, and, you know, when I say personality type, I'm, absolutely not referring to the you know um, you know the what's what's it called the the personality types that that we test for and all that kind of silliness, but rather like just somebody's general style of personality um, how they interact with, other quizzers, both from their team and other teams, uh, their level of energy, uh, you know, outwardness versus inwardness, that kind of stuff. How much do you think that plays a role in sort of that team dynamic and the gelling of the team? And to top it all off, how much does team gelling matter? Is is it, you know, is is this um is this a team sport where team gelling is is absolutely critical? Is it more? Closer to the idea of well, you need five really good individuals, um, and or or and where where do you see things on that spectrum?
1: Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts here. I think first off, as far as like the teamwork and team gelling, one thing you see in sports is you're like oh, like this team won the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals, like because they were just so much of a team. They enjoyed each other's company, and well, I think it's very easy to enjoy everyone's company when everything's going great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's kind of, um, a lagging effect almost. And it's not the reason that necessarily that the team had such success in results. Right. Um, right. but I think quizzing is, it's a competitive thing and the competitors are relatively young and it is a stressful thing that comes with lots of failure and especially at the internationals level, um, the accuracy is around 50, 55% as a whole, which means even the best teams are getting three to four out of every 10 jumps wrong. And so I think the personality to handle all of that is important to know um, I got that one wrong and I couldn't have done anything differently. My study was good. My jump speed was good. I made a good guess, but I had to guess and luck didn't, luck and probability didn't smile on me this time. Um, The ability to know all those things versus like, oh, I should have known that it was unique and I didn't study enough or I jumped way too fast and I'm going to get 90% of those wrong jumping at that speed. I think like the, the ability to know the difference is huge. Additionally, even when you know that you couldn't have done anything different, the ability to really know that and not let it bother you going forward is also huge. And I think that's where the team aspect starts to really make a difference because every quiz at internationals is used to quizzing out all, every quiz at the district level or above 80, 90% of the time. And it is just so different to fighting for one to three jumps and one correct question a quiz. It's just because like, like how many quizzers are going to average more than one correct question a quiz? It's less than 10%, I think. Um, and that's where the team matters because you can feel like you can rely on the other people they can be encouraging verbally to you and remind you that um, you did everything that you could and did a good job even though you got an error and I think those things can be important and then similarly you don't want to have any competition internally because one thing I always told my teams is we have decided on optimal jump speeds for every single question type and if you jump faster than the than what we've decided is optimal, there are multiple things in play. One, you are depriving other teams of the chance to also jump imprudently, um, which we have decided is suboptimal. You're depriving them of the chance to do something suboptimal. <laughs> but you're also pre- preventing your team the opportunity to jump optimally. Um, and I thought the phrasing was important because... It was like a shared interest, right? It's not like, oh, you took a correct question away from somebody. It's like, we're all aiming for an optimal and you did something suboptimal and are like all we can do is execute the optimal jump speeds (laughs) and you are robbing your teammates of that opportunity. Um, And so you don't want to have anyone who wants to win more jumps for whatever reason or is not going to abide by those team rules that you've decided on. So I think like... Yeah, all of that matters. You want to jump in?
0: Well, no, I mean just other than to say yes, I totally agree with everything. I mean, you you need—I hate using the phrase—but you need everybody to be a team player in the sense of putting the interests of the team ahead of their own, say, personal interests. Like, I want to get more jumps. I want to show off in front of somebody or or groups of somebodies. Um, All of that is. Utterly secondary to the, the your, your personal needs need to be subordinated to the team needs, right? Um, and so the idea of like telling somebody at internationals to say, like, I need you to jump, I need you to increase your jumping speed on this particular upcoming question uh for some strategic reason, even though your you know success rate is going to go down. Um, but there's some sort of calculus that ultimately makes that a good idea in, in whatever context it happens to be. You need quizzers who are completely willing to say, like, okay, I, I'm gonna do that, right? Um, I'm because it's going to help the team if I do that, even if I err. And certainly I'm not gonna try to err, I'm trying to get the question as best I can, but I'm going to take a stronger risk on this particular next question. Or the next time a type of some type comes up, I'm going to risk higher because of some greater strategic reason for the team, even though it may result in a higher error rate for myself. Um, you want quizzers to be able to be have you know have that sort of mindset, team above individual at that level. Absolutely. I mean, I've had to tell quizzers
1: like one specific quizzer, you have to win this jump, right? And they mm-hmm. know they know what that means. You know, they're jumping at a speed that comes with probably eighty percent error rate. <laughs> Um, And we and we lose if they don't get it right. Um, But it's not about any of those optical downsides. It's, you know, giving the team a chance and executing
0: what their job is. Um, Yeah. And that's really hard, right? If you're if you're telling somebody, I want you to jump in such a way that we all know that there is an 80 percent chance that you're going to fail. But you have to do that because otherwise there is a 98% chance we're going to fail, Uh, right? The idea, like, if you don't jump at that 80% failure rate for this particular question, there's a very high likelihood the other team is going to get the jump and a very high likelihood that that as a result of, of that, regardless of if, if they get it correct or incorrect, we're not gonna win. And so it's better to have a 20% chance of success than a, you know, 2% chance of success. So you have to go for that 80% failure rate, even though every, you know, cell in your body is screaming that this is a bad idea. It it's actually a good idea in that one specific context.
1: Yep. And this is why. I feel so strongly about protesting if the situation calls for it, because if I have a team of five quizzers who are all going to execute that sort of role when asked, if they are in a situation that I think that they've been ruled incorrectly against, I'm going to protest all day long for them, right? And yes. I don't care if we get points for it, right? Because at the end of the <laughs> day, like winning and losing, like it doesn't really matter. But if they've worked that hard, I'm not going to deprive them the chance to get the results that they deserve.
0: Yeah. Totally agree. I mean, my biggest regret as a, as a coach was not protesting at internationals. Um, I I regret it to this day (laughs) because it's like, I feel like I let the teams down or I, or the, the team that I was coaching. I feel, I feel like I let that team down because I didn't protest. And it was, it was such a black and white issue too. Um, And even to this day, I'm, I'm really perplexed why I ended up deciding not to to protest. I, I think I, I think it was more like I was thinking in my mind, well, it's one question and we can make it up. And it turns out, nope, we, we didn't make it up and we didn't make it into the top nine by like one question, uh, one point. And so, yeah, that protest actually could have made, it could have made the difference.
1: Yeah. And that's why like when I, when we talk passionately about challenging and protesting, it's not because those points like matter, right? In um, that perfect little silo that, that, that event is occurring. It's just that if people have worked that hard, you want it to be done right, you know? And that's also why, um, I think the, our own personal standards for those things get relaxed the further back into the district that you go, because, um, there has been less time put in, right? And it's less important to make sure that the perfect right, right ruling happens. (laughs) Um, but especially a level like internationals, like I think challenges are, And protests are great by any team for any team so that the right outcome occurs. Yeah,
0: indeed. Always. All right. Well, we are right at about an hour, so we should probably wrap things up here. Um, Want to remind everybody, if you agree, or most especially if you disagree with anything that Scott or I said, we would like to hear from you please email us at iq at cbqz.org uh, you can and should follow us on twitter our account is at inside quizzing and you should also participate uh, in the uh, slack channel chats uh, you can chat with us about anything related to quizzing and probably a handful of things that have nothing to do with quizzing as well in the inside dash uh quizzing channel on slack and with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Griffin. Yeah.